On this episode of The Jury Room, I'm featuring an episode from a, from a close personal friend of mine, Paige, from the Reverie True Crime Podcast. She is a fantastic human being. When I started this podcast, she was one of the first podcasts to just welcome me to the community, and she was always there willing to lend a helping hand, and I just can't thank her enough. Now, Paige is wonderful. She does a great job with her research. She is easy to listen to, and she is very much victim-centered. So, Paige, thank you for everything that you've done for me, for the community, on your podcast. I wish you all the best, all the success in the world. So make sure you guys go and show her some support, some love. Just thank you, Paige. Now, I hope you enjoy this show. Hello and welcome to Reverie True Crime. I'm your host, Paige. Today's episode is part two of a mini-series about women who lost their lives to domestic violence in Nottingham, England. In the last episode, I'll explain what Claire's Law is and how it is helping people in abusive relationships due to the Nottinghamshire police failing these women I'm telling you about, among many others. Today's episode is about Casey Brittle and Kelly Ann Bates. Let's get started. It was November 2011 when Melissa Freeman, an 18-year-old mother of a 2-year-old, had been residing in a temporary housing situation and she was considering finding a place she could call her own. When she was approved to move into British public housing, she was so excited and took the opportunity when Nottingham City Homes told her that they had a three-bedroom house in New Basford. However, when she moved in, it was not at all what she expected. Melissa knew what had happened in the house before she moved in, but what she did not know is what was still embedded in the floors and a bedroom door. There were red stains everywhere. Melissa made a lot of complaints to Nottingham City Homes since they managed the public housing there. She said that someone came in December from the organization who said it was indeed blood. Nottingham City Homes denies that that was ever said. They went on to say that the stains were not blood and were said to be nail polish by a surveyor. A forensic expert went to the home and studied the stain swabs and said that it was highly probable that two of the stains found on the adjoining boards on the floor were blood. The forensic expert said the stain on the door did not appear to be blood. Melissa said, quote, It's really getting me down. At Christmas, I didn't even put decorations up because I just didn't want to be in the house. I don't really want to stay here. I won't even stay on my own. I'm that terrified. I've got to the point where I've just broken down crying 
because it's got to me so much. Seeing the blood and knowing all of the stories makes it worse. To help her feel safer and less scared, her friend Haley McKenzie was staying at the house to keep her company. Unfortunately, Melissa didn't see the stains until she had already moved in on November 28th. Allegedly, the house was deep cleaned in April and cleaned again in November before Melissa moved in. The City Council portfolio holder for housing regeneration and community sector, Dave Liversidge, stated, quote, The letting of this property should have been handled with a great deal of sensitivity, and Nottingham City Housing's approach has not been good enough. I have spoken to NCH about this and told them that I expect lessons to be learned. After the forensic expert did discover blood, Chief Executive Nick Murphy said, quote, Further information was provided to us with regards to the stains in the property on Tuesday this week, January 10th, 2012. Although we haven't been provided with any evidence of this, the important thing is we have responded straight away and removed the small stain from underneath the radiator on the landing. Last week, we had already arranged that on Monday, January 9th, our specialist cleaning contractors would visit Springfield Street and make sure all the markings on both the skirting board and door were removed. Before leaving, we double-checked with the tenant that she was satisfied the stain was gone. We are following this up with a visit from one of our senior managers. She will be sitting with Miss Freeman to talk through her situation and help resolve any outstanding concerns. We understand this must have been a very distressing time for Miss Freeman, and we hope we are able to work with her to find a resolution. As far as if Melissa decided to stay or not, I couldn't find any information on it. So if you know, you can let me know. So, what exactly happened in this house? 21-year-old mother of a toddler at the time in 2010, Casey Brittle, had her own home, which she sometimes shared with the father of her baby, Sanchez Williams, who was 27 years old. They had been together for four years. He was notorious for his violent behavior. Nottinghamshire police had responded to not one, not two, but 11 calls between September 2008 to August 2010 because of how Sanchez was being abusive to Casey. The Independent Police Complaints Commission said police didn't enforce positive action. They didn't carry out bail provisions which would have prohibited Sanchez Williams from communicating with Casey, and they demonstrated a lack of understanding of domestic abuse procedures. Casey spoke to the police on numerous occasions, telling them that she was terrified of Sanchez. They didn't act on her complaints and fears. Like many victims of domestic violence, she was hesitant to press charges against him. There was even a time when Casey was shopping 
and Sanchez assaulted her, which was caught by CCTV, and people overheard him saying he was going to kill her. The police didn't even investigate. In October 2010, Sanchez attacked Casey in the bedroom in front of their two-year-old daughter. The little one kept going in the room at least four times during the assault, which would eventually lead to Casey's death. Their two-year-old was yelling and crying, I want my mommy, which was overheard by the neighbor. Casey didn't make it due to her many injuries inflicted on her head by Sanchez. She also had a fractured jaw, many cuts, and bruises. Part of her ear was gone, and both eyes were swollen shut. Casey and Sanchez Williams' daughter sat in the bedroom by herself for hours while her mother laid unconscious. She eventually fell asleep at the foot of her mother's bed. Casey passed away while in transit to the hospital. Casey's cause of death was multiple blunt force injuries, mostly to her head. There were 27 separate injuries to her face and head. Six police officers faced misconduct raps, and another four police officers have been disciplined for unsatisfactory performance. Victoria, Casey's mom, did not really put any blame on the police. Victoria said, quote, I know mistakes were made in dealing with previous attacks involving Casey, but there's only one person responsible for my daughter's death, and that is Sanchez Williams. Maybe one small change in the way things were handled could have saved her. Or maybe Sanchez Williams was a time bomb just waiting to explode and nothing that anybody could have said or done was ever going to prevent him from murdering Casey. Victoria went on to say, quote, I miss her. I just miss her so much. He stole her future and he stole her daughter's future and he didn't have a right to do that. Sanchez Williams confessed to what he had done, and in March of 2011, he was given a life sentence, with the minimum being 15 years in prison before he could be considered for parole. A few months later in June, that was increased to at least 20 years. While Sanchez kept his head down during the evidence being shown, also crying, Casey's dad yelled at him to look up. Everyone in the courtroom applauded. In 2012, Casey's mom was campaigning for a women's shelter that had lost its government funding in 2010. It's the Nottingham's Central Women's Aid, which at the time was barely making it on donations. The shelter in 2012 had enough room for six women and 11 children. Victoria said, quote, When you have experienced that just absolute devastation of losing a child, what I have done and what I have needed to do is to try and prevent it happening to another parent. There are not many safe places for women to escape to. I need to know something positive has come out of this. There are things that happen that I can't change, 
So now I have to focus on the things that I can change. So that is what I am doing now. I looked into centralwomensaid.org and it says under what we do, we provide temporary emergency accommodation for women and children fleeing domestic or sexual violence and abuse. We provide emotional and practical support to women and children during their time at the refuge as well as once they have been resettled. We run courses that will directly empower women during or following periods of domestic abuse. We deliver services that will improve the health and well-being of victims and survivors of domestic abuse. We can assist and support women with complex needs such as substance use and mental health issues. Under practical support, it says, we provide emergency accommodation to women and children fleeing domestic abuse. We can help with clothing and food and ensure that you have the essential items on arrival. We can help with maximizing income through claiming benefits or paid work, counseling support, accessing education, and making links with other external agencies. We may be able to provide emergency funding and have links with food and clothing banks. We can help with finding permanent housing to move on to. We can assist and support women with complex needs, for example, women living with addiction issues. Under well-being, it says, there are regular visits from mental health nurses. We have links with health services. We run workshops on a wide variety of topics such as self-care, budgeting, cooking, and CV writing dependent on the needs of women and children at any time. Under additional support, it says, Dedicated support workers for women and children, interpreter services for those who are non-English speaking, resettlement support, the Freedom Program, they go on to say that if you are a professional who works with victims or survivors of domestic abuse and need to make a referral to us, then contact us here. If you are interested in receiving professional training around the Freedom Program or domestic abuse, then please email us at support at centralwomensaid.org. Under Other Support Agencies, it states... If you have suffered domestic violence or abuse, there are many different organizations which can help you with information and advice. Please view a detailed list by visiting the Citizens Advice website. Under Who Can Access Emergency Refuge Accommodation, they say, Women over the age of 16 with or without children who are fleeing domestic or sexual violence and abuse. We accept women from any background, of any ability, and women with additional support needs such as substance use or mental health issues. We also support women who have been subject to rape and sexual assaults. Unfortunately, the refuge is not currently accessible to wheelchair users or people unable to safely use stairs. However, I did come across another website uk.virginmoneygiving.com about the Nottingham Women's Central Aid, 
and I'm not sure when exactly this website was updated, but it does say that they can still only hold six women, 11 children, and give relocation assistance to an additional six women in the community. The Nottingham Women's Central Aid does have a few corporate supporters, but they still seem to mostly rely on charity donations. Also, to get more in-depth with the whole timeline of events, there is a document from YUMPU.com, and it lays out the events that happened to Casey from 2008 until her death. And I will have that link in the show notes if you would like to read it. It is very lengthy, but I feel it's important to read it if you have the chance. Now I want to get into the story of Kelly Ann Bates. Grooming. It's what predators do to mostly children, but adults aren't off the table either. They take notice of the vulnerable ones, the sensitive and fragile. The person will be so sweet, charming, and you'll think that they hung the moon just for you. They'll eventually get you to take your guard down and open up to them, make you feel as comfortable as possible. You'll feel so important now that you've found someone who's there for you, listening to you and caring about you. Whatever you're missing in your life, they'll attempt to fulfill it. Compliments, attention, gifts. The predator will slowly start to see how deep this relationship can get with their prey, sometimes trying to fill out the parents to see what they may think of him or her. Groomers of children will ask if their parents know about their relationship. He or she may ask the child to keep it a secret. Then there's the isolation, separating you from your family by making you think that they're the most important person you could ever have in your life. All you need is them. Your bond is more special than any you have with anyone else. Over time, making you more and more distant physically and emotionally towards your family. There's talks of sex and questions surrounding the topic. They don't want you to freak out. They want to introduce the subject slowly to make you feel like what you're saying matters to them. Enough talking about it and a child can get desensitized to the topic. And sometimes, just sometimes, to make things seem okay when it's not, they'll show the child pictures of other kids in the nude or having sex, trying to normalize it. Mix that with someone thinking they're in love and sex will eventually, most likely, happen. Groomers love control. It's important. They must make sure that you are dependent on them in every way. They'll use your deepest secrets that you've exposed to them and threats to make you feel weak, helpless, and bound to them because you think you really do need them. You still think they love you, so this doesn't seem like strange behavior. They do it because they care so much. James Patterson Smith, born in 1948, did not have a job and he was divorced. 
He lived in Gorton in Manchester. He was divorced because the woman he was married to for 10 years in 1980 left him due to the abuse she suffered. In private, he was a rapist, a sadistic, heinous monster. But as a lot of his kind, James portrayed himself to people who knew him to be mindful of his physical appearance. He was always trying to look his best. He was keen on his house being immaculate and organized. People said that he didn't smoke and he was pretty straight edge. After his divorce in 1980, he targeted Tina Watson, age 20. For two years, he made this girl his punching bag and mercilessly beat her a lot, even when she was pregnant with their baby. Tina said, quote, At first, it was now and again, just a little tap. But in the end, it was every day. He would smack me in the face or hit me over the head with an ashtray. He would kick me in the legs or between the legs. James also tried to kill Tina. He attempted to drown her in the bathtub as she was in the midst of bathing. Tina Watson went through hell, but she was one of the fortunate ones in the end because she was able to get away from him in 1982. James wasn't going to give up on finding a female to groom and abuse. He met a 15-year-old child named Wendy. Of course, she was violently attacked, and as James did with Tina, he tried to drown Wendy too. This time, he tried a different method. He grabbed Wendy and shoved her head in the kitchen sink, which was full of water. His attempt was unsuccessful. James was still on the prowl, like a lion, laying in the grass, hunting weaker prey. Then, he spotted her, and did not hesitate to leap at the opportunity to snatch up a young, unexpecting target. Kelly Ann Bates was born on May 18, 1978, to Tommy and Margaret Bates. At the young age of 14 in 1993, she was Sadistic James's new victim. At this time, he was well into his 40s. Kellyanne had been babysitting for a friend, and unfortunately their paths crossed, and he allegedly asked her if he could walk her home. Two years later, Kelly left school and decided to move in with James. The age difference was obviously going to be a problem with her parents, so that became a skeleton in her closet for a while. Eventually, though, he did meet her parents under the false name of Dave, saying he was 32 years old. Kelly's mom said, quote, As soon as I saw him, the hairs on the back of my neck went up. I tried everything I could to get Kellyanne away from him. I vividly recall seeing our bread knife in the kitchen and wanting to pick it up and stab him in the back. It was a bizarre thought. I would never normally think of anything so violent. Now I wonder if that was some sort of sixth sense. Looking back, it's my greatest regret that I didn't kill him there and then. It would have saved my daughter's life. 
James made Kellyanne's parents think that he loved her, that he would do anything for her, and cared about her well-being. If Kelly stayed out late at night, James would call her parents and express his concerns and worries. There did come a time when Kelly's mother had a feeling that she was being fooled. She confronted James and asked him why he wasn't being honest about his name and age. James said, quote, I didn't tell you because I thought you wouldn't want me being with Kelly because of the age difference. At this time, James was 48 years old. Kelly and James had a verbal fighting match in November of 1995, which led to her leaving him, but it was not long before she was back living with him again. Any time that Kelly went home, Margaret obviously saw her daughter was losing a lot of weight. She wasn't taking care of herself, and she wasn't taking baths. Kelly's parents begged and pleaded for her to come home, to leave him numerous times, but the legal system in England deemed her an adult. Her parents could not legally make her leave him. The abuse and isolation had begun. Bruises and bite marks were being seen by her mom and dad, but like a lot of victims of domestic violence, she came up with excuses and put the blame elsewhere. Kelly even visited once with a black eye, but she said it was a bunch of girls who jumped her in the street. She could never say it was from James battering her. At this point, Kelly was detaching herself from everyone, except James, and by December of 1995, she left her part-time job. In March of 1996, it was Kelly's parents' anniversary and her dad's birthday, so she mailed them cards. At least, the cards said they were from Kelly, but they were in James's handwriting. Kelly's brother felt something odd was going on. Something just didn't sit right with him. He went to James's house to visit Kelly. James told him, Kelly's not here. A neighbor increasingly grew worried because she had not seen Kelly, so she went over to ask about her. After that, Kelly was seen just for a moment through the window upstairs. There is no question that James was a controlling pedophile and a sadistic, twisted, violent rapist who attempted murder twice already on his unsuspecting underage girlfriends who had been groomed by him. Attempting to murder was not an option at this point. This time, he was going to kill, and he was going to be successful at it. It was not going to be a painless death, either. Kelly Ann Bates was about to be tortured until she took her last breath. She didn't know about his past with other girls. Even if she would have asked police, they could not disclose any information about him if they had any, which is why Claire's law is important and relevant to these cases. Her parents even alerted the police as well as social services, but they couldn't get involved. 
Kelly was used to the abuse, but she could never imagine what she was going to be subjected to this time. Her demise was brutal and heartbreaking. If you would rather not hear the details, this is your trigger warning. During Kelly's last month on this earth, she was imprisoned in the house. At times, James would tie her hair up to chairs or radiators. Sometimes, he would use a ligature around her neck as well. He was starving her and did not even give her water for at least a few days before she passed away. April 17, 1996, James sauntered into the police station. He told them that he killed his wife by mistake. James said Kelly was taking a bath, and they got into an intense argument, and she inhaled and choked on the bathwater. He claimed that he tried CPR, but that nothing he did to revive her worked, and she died. He even said Kelly faked being unconscious and dead sometimes, so he wasn't sure if she was pretending or not, and went back a few times to check on her. It was even said in court that he said to one officer, quote, I've killed her, I know I have. To another officer, he said, I know I'm going away. I know there is no point. I'm going to get found out anyway. When the police arrived at James's house, they found Kelly, nude, in a bedroom. Her blood was in every single room of that house. There was blood all over the floors, the walls, everywhere. The details I'm about to tell you get gruesome, but it is important to know what the victim went through. Be aware that this can happen to people that we love. It can happen to any one of us, and these things happen every day. Maybe not to this extent, but it is never impossible and that is the terrifying part. This is why I urge you all, if you or someone you know are in a bad situation, to visit the websites in the show notes. It's vital and could save a life. On April 16, 1996, the police went to Tommy and Margaret's home to tell them that Kellyanne was dead. The post-mortem exam was horrific. Kelly had over 150 injuries all over her body. These injuries consisted of scalding to her buttocks and left leg, burns on her thigh from a hot iron. Her arm was fractured, and she endured many stab wounds caused by knives, forks, and scissors. Kelly had stab wounds inside of her mouth, both of her hands had been crushed. James mutilated her ears, nose, eyebrows, mouth, lips, and genitalia. He used a shovel and pruning shears that caused some of her injuries, and he extracted both of her eyes. After Kelly's eyes were gouged out, he stabbed her empty eye sockets and even scalped her to a degree. Ultimately, he drowned her in the bathtub after beating her over the head 
with the shower head after he had tortured her for a month. The pathologist concluded that her eyes had been taken out anywhere between five days prior to her death to three weeks before, but no longer than that. Kelly's cause of death was drowning. Pathologist William Lawler said, quote, In my career, I have examined almost 600 victims of homicide, but I have never come across injuries so extensive. Kelly Ann Bates had dreams of becoming a teacher because she loved kids and had such a motherly instinct. She was a teenage girl, mature for her age, and she was a tomboy for sure, super bubbly, who loved sports, and she was strong. Kelly was going to college and worked for a graphics firm. This teenage girl, 17 years old, had her life taken from her slowly and painfully. A teenager with goals, so much potential, and a bright future. This monster, disguised as a human, groomed her, manipulated her, abused and tortured her to death, and took all of her dreams away from her, and took her from her family and friends. It's not just teenagers or children that these things happen to. Adults can be just as easily manipulated and groomed, ending up in a hellish nightmare that you cannot escape, like Kelly and others. Kellyanne was buried the day before she would have turned 18. Kelly's mother, Margaret, said she went to James's house once, and he pointed out to her a hole in his floor. He claimed to have a gas leak, but a short time after her visit, that hole is where he kept Kelly. Her mother tried. She begged. She pleaded with her daughter to leave, but it was like he had put a curse on her. James said that he did not murder Kelly, pleading not guilty. He started disgustingly victim-blaming her, saying she would put him through hell, winding him up, taunting him about his deceased mom, and would hurt herself to make it look like he did it. At Manchester Crown Court, James was questioned about why he removed Kelly's eyes, stabbed her, and beat her. His answer was that Kelly dared him to do it. He claimed that she was challenging him to hurt her. Gillian Metzi, a psychiatrist, told the court that James had a severe paranoid disorder with morbid jealousy and that he lived in a distorted reality. Prosecutor Peter Openshaw said, quote, It was as if he deliberately disfigured her, causing her the utmost pain, distress, and degradation. The injuries were not the result of one sudden eruption of violence. They must have been caused over a long period and were so extensive and so terrible that the defendant must have deliberately and systematically tortured the girl. Her death must have been a merciful end to her torment. 
Not only do we all know that everything that comes out of James's mouth is total nonsense, but the jury only took an hour to come back with a guilty verdict. James Patterson Smith was sentenced to life in prison, and the judge stated, quote, This has been a terrible case, a catalog of depravity by one human being upon another. You are a highly dangerous person. You are an abuser of women, and I intend, so far as it is in my power, that you will abuse no more. The jury had to look at the pictures of Kelly's injuries, the autopsy, and hear detail after detail about all of the violence. The case was so disturbing and traumatizing that professional counseling was made available to all the jurors so they could try to deal with what they experienced throughout the trial. From what I read, all of the jurors accepted the counseling. In 1998, Kelly's parents set up the support after murder and manslaughter. The two would conduct get-togethers for support and events for other families that were dealing with murder and manslaughter. Kelly's mom, Margaret, said that James's sentence will never be enough, and she lost the best thing that had ever happened to her. Margaret said, quote, Kelly was a good girl. As well as babysitting, she had a job on a market stall on weekends. She played hockey, and she was clever at school. She was hardworking and sensible, and I could never have dreamed she was being groomed by a monster. At the age of 65, Margaret passed away in a hospital right before Christmas 2020 after she had battled with breast cancer twice and went through radiotherapy treatment, which wore down her immune system. Margaret also had asthma and began having trouble breathing. On December 17th, respiratory failure was the cause of her death. This year, James Smith will have his chance at parole, and it had been weighing intensely on Kelly's mom's mind, heart, and soul. The family's home had been demolished, so there could be a supermarket called Tesco built there. Well, Margaret began to work at the supermarket as a cashier. She said she felt she was closest to Kelly when she worked there. She said, quote, My checkout desk overlooks the spot where our living room once stood. It is a real comfort to be surrounded by my memories and the familiarity of the past. I feel near to Kellyanne on my checkout. It's my safe place. I know her spirit is there. I feel like she's home again. Kellyanne's dad, Tommy, has been having a really hard time dealing with the deaths of his daughter and wife. Tommy also has health issues. He made the comment that his head was, quote, away with the fairies. He still has his and Margaret's sons by his side, Andrew, age 39, and Paul, age 33. Since Margaret's passing, people have paid tribute to her. They've always had amazing things to say. 
Examples of this would be the things that they all say on Facebook. Amy Fisher wrote, What can you say about this lady other than she was one of the loveliest ladies I've ever met? Lovely, golden heart, time for anyone. Rest in peace with your girl. Ellen Grosvenor wrote, quote, Heartbreaking, absolutely lovely lady, back with her Kellyanne. Leighton McMiler said, quote, She always had a smile for everyone and was so warm and friendly. I could always have a nice chat and a laugh with her. Being old school, she always addressed people with sir or madam and would often help people pack their shopping. Margaret managed to carry on daily, being friendly and chatty to complete strangers. How brave and strong she must have been. Kelly's dad and Margaret's beloved husband, Tommy, said that Margaret always wanted to go be with Kelly. Thank you all so much for listening to part two of this series. Come back and join me this coming Monday for a new episode. Part three will be about Denise Skilbeck. Until next time, stay safe and take care.